On the 28th of November 1979, an Air New Zealand sightseeing flight TE-901 crashed into the side of Mount Erebus in Antarctica. All 257 passengers and crew on board were instantly killed. At the time here in New Zealand, it seemed like everyone knew someone connected to the tragedy. I knew someone too. Over the years, we've heard a lot of stories about Erebus, the cover-up, the court case, the controversy. But here's some stories you might not know. Hi, I'm Lizzie Oakes, and when I was 10, I lost my nan, Muriel Florence Rose Harrison, to Erebus. 40 years later, I'm a broadcaster, and on this podcast, Erebus Engraved on Our Hearts, I'm speaking with others whose lives have been impacted by the disaster. Episode 10. Three people is such a lot to lose. David Allen is a lovely man, but I was a bit nervous to speak with him because David and his brother and sister lost their mum, dad and sister Jane on the flight. Thank you for coming in today, David. It's really lovely to meet you. Good to be here. Now, you lost three of your family members on the flight. Dad. Malian. Malian. Yes. Your mum, Marjorie, and your sister, Jane. So Jane was 18. What was she doing at that point of her life? School. She'd just leave. It was her final year at school, basically. And so how was it that the three of them ended up going on the trip? What was the occasion? Uh, my father was, well, he'd obviously travelled a lot of the world by virtue of his career. He lectured Peter Mulgrew at uh, Greenwich Naval College. Wow. And so that's why he chose that particular flight to, to go on. Peter was the... Um, he was the commentator or the right. guide. That's right, yes, yes. So a very good friend of Sir Edmund Hillary's. And so that was why uh, he wanted... My father wanted to go. I've got several books on Antarctica at home, which were his, and um, had a fascination for it. And it was a part of the world, obviously, he hadn't actually been to. Um, but he'd read an awful lot about so he booked two seats um, to go, and my mother said that uh, she they didn't have a, a lot of money and, and uh, there were other places she would rather go if they were going to spend that money. Mm-hmm. And so that's how it rested at that point, and my uh, younger sister was there with that conversation. She said, well, I'll go. <laughs> so she went, and then um, the Williams family, who are very good friends and a very generous family. And, and they, uh, uh, Leonard Williams, as he was known, came for dinner one night because his wife was in India seeing their daughter, I think, and a daughter. And uh, over dinner uh, with my parents, they uh, were talking about this trip and he thought that sounded uh, a great thing to do. So he booked a flight for he and his wife and one of his sisters, I think, but certainly she went, one of his sisters, so there were three of them. And he very kindly bought a ticket for my mother as well because he thought this um, Jan, his wife, wouldn't want to go without Marjorie. Mm. So that's how the three of them came to be on on the flight. So, David, um, I'm sure you can remember that day really well. Where were you and what were you doing when you heard the news? The first I heard of it was um, I was returning home and preparing to go out to the airport to pick up my parents and sister and uh, a neighbour, John Haig, he was there and and I thought something was a little strange as to why he was there and he looked a bit shaken when he came out and uh, he said, oh, the plane Sarah's parents are on is missing and I said, I don't. 
don't worry about the detail of, of that, but it was actually my parents. But I said, gosh, is that the situation? And um, so I said, can I just use your phone? I think that was my first reaction. And and uh, can you just keep her company while I just establish the fact? So I rang in New Zealand and um, got the typically what you'd expect and a bit of a blank wall, which started to, I guess that was the intensity of it. I said, said that I wouldn't be causing any fuss, but I said to this woman, I said, all I am simply asking you is, and I'll put you in my position, if your parents and sister were on that flight, would you say I've got cause for concern? Yes or no? And she said, well, yes. And so that was it. Then we were back. And then, of course, we still didn't know at that point what had happened. The plane was due to uh, return to Christchurch to refuel, but clearly it was never going to happen. So that was it. And then it was about 11 o'clock, I think, at night when it was it was sort of confirmed that, that it had all happened. And so then it was a question of putting all the things that you have to put in motion from then on. Three people. That's just such a lot to lose. Mm. Yeah, no question about that. Yeah, for my younger brother, it was really his whole family because I'd left home and my sister likewise, really. We'd had a lovely evening the night before with the family and had some family movies and things that I'd taken and lots of laughs and I guess made it all the more poignant. Yeah, how how did you guys get through, the three of you? I mean, obviously you were married but you had your... Sister Sally and your younger brother? I suppose literally in getting through was um, was a question of just uh, some of those things became quite lucid really quite quickly in the sense that, well, I've just got to close out my career for the moment and just focus on the family situation. So I went in at about five in the morning, I think, and to my office and my PAE in the days when you had such a thing, uh, such a person, she uh, she was already there and had been there and I'd never found out for how long, but she was wonderful and um, she dealt to a whole lot of things She'd in the days when we sent letters to each other and things. Mm. Um, she, um, she had written all these letters. She said, I think, she said, you can just sign all those. I know how you would respond to those ones. There's a couple here I wasn't quite sure, so I've done two versions of those, and it was just amazing and was illustrative of the care and support that everybody was willing to give, really. So you felt you felt supported? Oh, totally, yeah, and that made it very easy. And then so I was, then was absolutely just straight home and focusing on um, what I had to do from the family point of view. And ringing my mother's sister in England, I remember, and having to tell her the news. And then also receiving a call from my boss at the time, the general manager of the company, to say that there were two uh, of our major clients, customers on the flight. And he was letting me, you know, had I heard. So I had to tell him that, sorry, I couldn't really focus on that at the moment. The little things that come to mind, you suddenly find you, you've got another car parked on your, the back of your property, you've got a dog mm. <laughs> that you didn't have the day before when it was there with you, and all those things that just change your life, really. Yeah, then it was just the mechanics getting back to Hawke's Bay and what do we do for a service and all that sort of thing. So we had a memorial service at the cathedral in Napier, 
then it just took its path from there and went on and on, really, yeah, the legal, with the inquiry and the legal stuff. And I wrote to the Minister of Justice, Jim McClay, at the time, and I had actually, I was younger than him and it was probably yeah, two years behind at least at, at school, but we were in the same house at the school I was at, and um, wrote to him, but... Uh, and just I didn't mention any connection in that. It was just as a, a letter, as a person affected and just urging him to leave no stone unturned and establishing the cause and to ensure that it just, you know, would take every action to make sure that it never happened again and with what could be learnt from it. But I never even got a reply and that um, was, was very frustrating. Mm. Um, and it was symptomatic, um, I think, the general approach that was being taken at the time and uh, those, it's all history now, but it's um, those things are pretty uh, galling at the time when you feel the ball's not being rolled straight and at a time when that's all that needed to be done. A bit of integrity all round would have gone a long way. How do you find each year the, the anniversary? Uh, no problem. As a rule, <laughs> the we well, my great uncle who was alive at the time he, in, in the home we're in now, he he lived to be a hundred and two, so that was nice. And he planted we planted a, a mulberry tree in the garden, and there was a memorial plaque there. And sort of each anniversary, there'd be just a bunch of flowers placed there, and you'd just spend a few moments. Um, but then when the bigger ones come, like the, the, the sort of decayed type ones, which came more laterally even so, <laughs> um, it's a bit heavier then, I guess. Um, ironically, the uh, the mulberry tree suddenly died that had been there for many years. I thought, we've got to put a stop to this. So uh, I uh, commissioned a sculpture from a, a, a lovely lady in New Plymouth and uh, we're over there, and that's in our garden now and and um, it's obviously will go in perpetuity. Mm, <laughs> so what, what's the sculpture look like? It's a a cube, I suppose you'd say. It weighs about three hundred kilos. I think it's pretty heavy, and well, it's very heavy. And it sits on a cortin steel base. What instigated really was I saw some pictures of some of her work, which she's done internationally, and. Um, which is one very large sort of cube of stone, and then it was had these sort of waves carved in it, which were actually very reminiscent to me of the pressure waves of the ice down in Antarctica. And I thought that's quite nice. And then, um, so we're just chatting with her, and and, um, and then there's just three sort of almost like I suppose tennis ball size, which was all her concept of. Um, that are on different faces of the cube, which sits actually doesn't sit flat like a box. It actually sits on one point of the cube. And then if you can imagine the top point is um, has been flattened off and there's actually some Carrera marble that's there, which is which sort of sim- uh, signifies the ice, if you like, and Erebus. And mm. So we were thrilled with what she came up with. You were mentioning that the bigger anniversaries, like, you know, this is the 40th, you know, they're harder. Is that because suddenly all the media are interested in? Partly. I went, I had the good fortune to go to the uh, 30th anniversary in Antarctica as one of the family members. And I was 
very luckily, they were going to send a, a, a minister of the crown down, I think, and they decided that perhaps another family member should go instead of that. And, and uh, so it was quite late in the piece and it was it was Labour weekend. And I, we were down at our beach property and um, Rob Fife left a message and um, I rang him back and he was just so impressive, I thought, in terms of the way he handled things uh, of that nature. I rang him back and he was straight away just told me what the situation was. He said, but you'll have to have a medical check. You know, it'll all be done by, and, um, for McMurdo, the Americans have it rolling in. They just have to, you have to have these various checks. And if you're over 60, you have to have your heart checked. And so that became <laughs> a bit of a thing for me because you then had to try and get all this done, like, um, you know, heart checks and things within a matter of days and I thought I was fit and fine and ready to go and, and so did the heart guy. He said, but he th- I think we've picked up something. And I said, oh, God. I said, oh, well, I suppose it's a bonus, I suppose, if we found something. And he, he said, yeah. And I said, well, that means I won't be going. And he said, oh, I don't know. I'll see what we can do. And um, this was a Sunday evening. He did the test and by by the Thursday I was in Wellington having an angiogram <laughs> and uh it all turned out that there was nothing wrong with me at all. <laughs> so, so you got to go. <laughs> so it's not all bad. <laughs> <laughs> so how was that trip for you to Antarctica? Oh, I just loved it and it was just amazing. It was. It had every component of emotion you could possibly imagine in the full stretch of it each way. They had a memorial service in the sort of, I don't know whether they called it a canteen or whatever it was at uh, Scott Base. Yeah, that was I'd never experienced anything like that, and and uh, everybody was affected, you know, and just and but it was sort of how do I describe it? Just the atmosphere just felt very different and intense, and um, and and uh, and then the, we um, we flew to the uh, site to try and uh, drop the coru off that had been prepared with family members' messages and things. But we were literally just about to land, and uh, a gust of wind came, and the as happens down there, and the pilot said, I, "I don't think I can put you down." He said, "We'll probably not get off if we." Do. And he flew us around, and I got photos of the site. And actually, I personally felt that was uh, a good thing in a way because I didn't want to walk the site, I didn't want to stomp over it. I just and it was largely covered, although you could still see some parts. Yeah, just an amazing spot. And I think actually going there, sort of, you, you, it's not just an imaginary thing in your mind. You know exactly where they are or were. Um, and I think that's healing in a way. Uh, and then we came back and then there was to be another attempt and that was ruled out to, to go there. So there was another little ceremony um, there at Scott Pace. And then on the Monday we... Um, we got in these um, Hagland vehicles and went up to Scott's hut and a penguin colony and ice cave and, and then to Shackleton's hut. And some people who are down there for six months never get, get that opportunity. So given my father's interest in the place and obviously some understanding of what he was fascinated by and whatever, that was really just a wonderful experience. Yeah, the whole region is just... It's so hard to describe. You just, when you're flying down, you just look and you suddenly see this thing. I think Australia goes into Antarctica twice. You know, I mean, it's vast and it's just all you see are these mountains and everything's white and it's just 
very special place. And I guess the other thing I would say with, with that was Pip Collins was there and, and others, but I've kept in touch with Pip over the years and if there's a positive in life, it's and at that time especially because there hadn't been any opportunities really to meet with others effective, that's affected. That's been a lovely thing really yeah. and you can share those experiences and um, you share a lot of things and it was and again it was an awful shame i think in retrospect that such a gathering of you know all the people that happened only a few years ago it, uh, hadn't happened before either and because that would have been very helpful to people and i was amazed at how intensely hurt some people still are um, and we we all are affected by it obviously but so you'd be referring to the the 39th anniversary that we had yes yes, yes. So really that had been the first, I mean, I know that Air New Zealand had put on some little services down there occasionally, but this was sort of the first one the government had ever put on. Yeah, and when all the families would have had a chance to, you know, anybody who wanted to could could be there, but it was very clear from the uh, emotions and the discussions that day that this is still a major issue for a lot of people, and I don't think that's widely understood, Um, and I think that's... That's unfortunate. People mm. don't understand the complexity of it, though, do they? It wasn't no. I mean, you lost a loved one in an accident, and yes. that, that's terrible. But and there's all that other stuff that kind yeah. of came along afterwards. Yeah, that was yeah, and could have done without a lot of that. And the whole thing, I think, it's just well, that's another side of it all. And I think um, just, I mean, for uh, for our family and so with the. You'd be should be straight up front with that. There's an accident. Those things happen. That's accepted, um, and no problem. But learn from it and just get on with life, so to speak, as best you can. And um, in each in everybody's case, but to put blocks in the way for so long, I think, has um, been unfortunate and uh, to say the least, and and made life very difficult for a lot of families. I think. Yeah, that's really um, a message that I'm getting through from having these conversations with people with um, Air New Zealand not fronting up and owning their part of the equation that I think it's actually really hindered people's healing of their loved ones that that others don't understand because... I think that's irrefutably correct. Yep, it has. And I don't think the... with There may be some exceptions, obviously, but I think as a general statement, the families were not gunning for Air New Zealand. They weren't gunning for the government and they wanted to know why this has happened and that we should learn from it, but not seeking to pillar somebody in the process. It was actually just to get to the bottom of it and let's get on with life. And I think um, for all the reasons we know that have just been so... The part that is frustrating is where with a lot of the actions that have followed and there's been a long list of them over the last almost 40 years that have reflected either a complete lack of integrity or a complete lack of sensitivity for those involved. And I think a lot of that could have been avoided just by dealing with it. Maybe I'm oversimplifying, but I think from the family's point of view, that is very much the position. Where do things sort of sit for you now with Erebus and, and the loss of your loved ones? I guess, I, I mean, obviously now after 40 years, that's all you've come to terms with everything that's happened. Um, 
just of late, I, I thought the, I mean, living where we did in Auckland, I thought the choice of Parnell Rose Gardens and I knew them quite well and the location and everything else. And then to hear that that's where it was going and to go there again just to have a look and see, I was just ecstatic about that. I thought that was the perfect spot and the, how fortunate that was. And then to have what's happened of late, I think is, um, well, it, it's one of those ones which falls into the category of a lack of sensitivity. Mm. And uh, I just think it's I, I just uh, it's sanctimoniously selfish. Yeah, and you want to have a place where it sounds like, you know, you've built a beautiful sculpture in your garden just for your family, but you want a national place to go where where all the names of our loved ones can be. Totally. And, I mean, part of the reason for the one at home was the fact that there wasn't one. Yes, I, I think it's, I've viewed it and still do um, what's proposed as an asset for the community, not just something for the Erebus families to do. It'll be, um, I thought, the design, and, and I think that was the conclusion from the families, the consultation with families. They didn't want just a plinth with 257 names on it. It wanted to be something that added to the uh, the world and and. The environment, you know, the the location was such that it was an appealing place to visit for anybody. Mm. And suggestion that it's a grave and those sort of things, are, well, we don't need to go there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think what you're saying is that Erebus is a, an important part of our nation. It's not just those of us who lost somebody. So there should be a place where it's marked for everybody yes. to know that, hey, this is something that massive that happened. It had a ripple effect across the nation and it's still affecting people 40 yeah. years later. And it's a message that these things happen and for the future for people to learn. And I would draw a line connecting with the, the, the nature of Anzac Day services and so forth. I mean, most people now have lost any direct connection with people of the First World War or whatever, or Second World War. And the children are going, a family still going to those things and... and uh, the numbers are often increasing, and I think it's a and it's awareness of of life and the loss of, and the significance of it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Erebus Engraved on Our Hearts. I'm Lizzie Oakes. Thanks to Scott Gillen, my audio engineer, and to Rima Media for their support. On the next episode, I'll be speaking with a good friend of mine, Sarah Miles, who lost her papa, Frank Christmas. Sarah has recently published her book, Towards the Mountain, a story of grief and hope, 40 years on since Erebus. To subscribe, go to Erebus Engraved on Our Hearts on iTunes, Spotify or erebusengravedonourhearts.com.